0: You're listening to Episode One, Why Companies Need to Think About Their Own Intelligence Needs, with national security expert and former senior U.S. diplomat, Craig Singleton. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment.
1: Hello, Craig Singleton. It is great to have you on our inaugural The Business of Intelligence podcast. How are you today?
2: Doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: No, no, thank you. We're going to get right into it. The only thing I want to say is just for our audience members, we'll have links to Craig's profile, but he's a national security expert and former senior U.S. diplomat. I have to say, for me, I'm particularly excited to have Craig on the show. You know, I think of kind of a phrase that they use sometimes in government, but excellence in execution. And I've had the the honor to see Craig perform at a very high level and time sensitive, complex environments. Craig, I got to say, like, you're, in my opinion, a master of being able to synthesize large data, make decisions, even when information is not all available, and be very decisive and precise in your thoughts and actions. So it's great to have you. And, you know, I think it's particularly relevant to give that background because the main theme of this episode is how private sector and corporate spaces can utilize intelligence to the fullest. I think just to get the questions rolling, I mean, Ryan and I thought some some good things to ask you. First one, it's kind of a two-part question, but why do you think companies need intelligence? And if you were gonna brief a senior official, how would you convey to him what he might be missing by not having an adequate intelligence program? And part two of that is how would you recommend teams, whether it's a existing team or a small one-person shop, how would you get them started in the right direction?
2: Well, thanks so much for that uh, excellent and warm intro, and it's always great to see the two of you and to be able to participate in this podcast and to speak to this this audience of, I think, our peers and folks maybe just starting to get a foothold in the industry and to sort of figure out where they fit. I think it's sort of an opaque system in general, and so having these sorts of conversations can be really helpful. I think in this very moment, apart from 9-11, and I think the three of us are all sort of part of that 9-11 generation, that 9-11 cohort, I can't think of a more complex geopolitical moment in the modern era. And it's something that sort of overlaps between the corporate space and what corporations and the private sector are facing from state actors, from non-state actors in the physical space, as well as the cyberspace. And so I sit back and I look at each sector and we look at the threat emanating from Russia and the threat emanating from China and the threat emanating from terrorism groups in Iran and North Korea. And it's sort of this never ending list of, of threats and risks. And in the private sector, you're always looking to mitigate risk. And I think one of the biggest things and one of the biggest challenges, perhaps facing the private sector right now, at least in my knowledge and my working with the private sector is risk mitigation means you have to actually come out and speak honestly about your risks you have to really quantify them and you have to qualify them and this is really hard because typically if in a lot of business cultures you aren't rewarded for saying here are all of our holes here are all of our problems here are all these challenges and so you are sort of forced to confront your blind spots and these problems and for a lot of individuals in the corporate world that is really potentially opening a big can of worms the good news i think though is that folks with our background sort of approach that challenge with a certain degree of gusto, a a certain period of intellectual curiosity. It's more of a where do we start to sort of prioritize and sort of unpack a lot of these big concerns. And so if I am a business owner, if I'm a CEO, if I'm a CIO, if I'm sitting somewhere in the C-suite, or if I'm working at an entry level role in any company in America right now that has its uh, has connectivity overseas, I'm seeing risk in front of me on my computer screen. And so I think the value of intelligence is primarily help us quantify and qualify that. Let us tell you where we can mitigate it and where you can't eliminate risk. We're going to talk about how we prepare ourselves in a variety of different ways to approach those challenges. Getting started is always the hardest part. I mean, I always kind of go back to, I think something is sort of cliche. It's like the first step is admitting you have a problem. It's the biggest hurdle for corporate private sector stakeholders. It's increasingly difficult even in the government to sort of say, we have a flashing red light here. We really sort of need to step back and get all of our team together to sort of say and acknowledge that the next step is really identifying that person or that group that's going to sort of take over and have responsibility and to be empowered to do those things. And I think you mentioned something earlier that I think is just really salient and it's building the right team. It's something that in the government I found increasingly difficult, you sort of inherited teams. There were a lot of people that we worked with in the government that you'd look around the table and say, how is that person here? Or how do I I get rid of that person? (laughs) Uh, Right? And you can't. The systems and the structure don't allow it. And what's really amazing about the private sector is whether you're going to a corporate vendor or whether you want to build in-house expertise, you have this amazing luxury to build out And expertise and a skill set and an acumen that directly aligns to your risk. Because you've done that first step. You sat back and said, our biggest holes are here, here, and here. You have to plug those holes with people who have the right skills, the right experience, perhaps more importantly, are a right cultural fit. So those to me, I think, have just been some of the biggest lessons that I've seen. And I'm I'm constantly reminded of a story from President Eisenhower. So back in the day when they were starting to so we to make an argument within the government that we needed to have overhead imagery capability, which was, at the time was revolutionary. We need to have the U-2 spy plane. The Soviet Union emerges. They're going to Eisenhower. They're saying, we need all this money. We're going to take this amazing risk. Uh, these planes could get shot down. And he's like, well, what could you possibly uncover with this plane? So truth be told, Eisenhower's down in Augusta National playing golf, and they send the U-2 over Georgia while he's playing golf to take images of him and they bring it back. And the clarity of the picture was so clear that they start to critique his short game. And they're like, sir, how does this, how does this work for you? And he had no idea the plane was overhead, no idea the plane had been deployed. And it's sort of a mindset. I think that you can take and approach a CEO or an executive who isn't familiar with intelligence. And even in the case of Eisenhower, extraordinarily competent on intelligence and say, wouldn't you love to know this information before your last meeting? Wouldn't you love to know what the interlocutors of that meeting thought about your interaction? And how are you possibly going to take what the value and the knowledge that you have now and go forward? It's a little vignette, but it's something that's sort of, I think, stuck with me.
1: No, that was definitely powerful. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just conjuring the image and think we've done similar stuff at the tactical level, but you know, in different areas, but that's incredibly here at a strategic level like that.
2: Not that say, of, I'm not saying we should spy on... No, 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 no. ...or anything. But <laughs> <Very true. laughs> caveat, but I do think, right, it's a little bit if we take that that approach.
1: I had one quick pivot just because we kind of alluded to some of the not-so-good thing, but from your optic, what are some things that government does get right that private sector teams could adopt or improve upon? Yeah, is there anything you could think of off the top of your head? There are two that immediately come to mind
2: to me. And once again, like the grass is always greener. So I approach it being outside of government now a little differently. But the two things that I think government tends to do rather well as it comes to this function is long-term planning. They're always thinking one, two, three years out. They're forecasting well, be over the horizon in a way that a lot of, a lot of private sectors, it's a real luxury to be able to do that because the company may or may not exist, especially a startup. Like how can you start thinking about three or five-year plans if we got to get through payroll in the next 100 180 days. So one thing I think the government does in terms of staffing, in terms of forecasting, in terms of sort of resource management is really think through where do we think are going to be the hot spots to the extent possible and how do we have that long-term planning. And I think the second thing that I probably didn't appreciate as much when I was in government was the constant ability to get training. I think it's something that I'm not at least it's been my experience and talking to friends who have also left government, they sort of feel a little bit of a void in that space. You come out of government and you really do feel like you're a sharpened knife, like you're up to date with with everything that you could possibly have been tasked with doing. You're a subject matter expert on certain fields that you sort of had experience in. And if you sit back and reflect, you sort of say, wow, I came a really long way from the beginning of my career. And sprinkled throughout that process was almost certainly training, whether it was internal to the government or there were opportunities to get private sector experience or training or to go back to school. I do think this is an area where business executives and business leaders need to really be thinking through, and it doesn't need to be high-cost training either. There are so many amazing opportunities that can be done at scale for offices that you want to build up a particular acumen. You really want to train the trainers, if you will, so that you don't have to have these long tail contracts with outsourced providers to, to teach you something really invest in your people. And not only does it become like a self, I think really like a self-fulfilling feedback loop. The officers feel like they're learning something new. They're growing their is investing in them, but the company really benefits. It's something that the government, I think has done a really good job of over time, the military in particular. And I do think it's sort of a lesson going forward.
0: Hey, Craig, this is Ryan. You mentioned the the word mindset, which I want to come back to in a moment because we had an interesting conversation earlier around the, the concept of mindset. But I want to ask you one quick question before we get to that. And so I know a lot of teams out there that have built in-house functions and have started to expand on their expertise. Sometimes there's these perceptions that they have to deal with in the private sector setting. And so let me just ask you this. For any decision makers that might be out there listening, should they automatically equate intelligence to secrets? Why or why not? Because I think there might be this perception that intelligence does equate to secrets. So what would you say to
2: that, or what do you think about that? I mean, I think it's, intelligence is sort of in the eye of the beholder a little bit. I've always said, and I think we all kind of agree you know intelligence is more of a mindset it's a curiosity it's an interest in uncovering the answer to a question that no one else can really get to the bottom of if they're coming to the intelligence unit of a business or they're coming to an intelligence officer it's because it's not a simple google here right there's a real there's a real difficulty in sort of getting to that that piece of data and so i at least in my perspective it's really important to think through the entire process of getting an answer to a question Sometimes those answers are proprietary or maybe like using our old parlance secret. But in a lot of cases, They're really not, and they're really hiding in plain sight. And the way that you find them is because you have really well-skilled people on your team who know exactly where to look or will talk to people to find where that information is. I think a great example is if you were to talk to a lot of business executives right now, they would say their their number one strategic challenge is understanding China, whether you're in the government, whether you're in the private sector, wherever you fall, academia. And there's this view that China is opaque and it's extremely difficult to understand not only Chinese culture, but the plans and intentions of the Chinese government and the Chinese commercial space. It just seems overwhelming. And there was probably a time where that was true. But now more and more, even with digital controls and internet controls in China, a lot of the information that you're looking for can be found is online available. There are millions of ways to decipher and decode the data, to collate the data, to to go through it with language apps. You're not expected to build a, a Mandarin-speaking team just to cover those interests, right? And so I think once you immediately accept that, hey, maybe we can get that answer to that question that you're searching for, most business executives start to immediately see value and they start to immediately be like, well, that was something that no one else on my team could get. And that was something that I couldn't myself decipher. So you anticipated my needs and you met them. Uh, And a lot of that just comes down to this mindset of saying, well, if you're coming to me, it must be a important and B, you must have been unable to get it any other way. And for an intelligence officer, that's an exciting challenge. And I think if you're looking to hire people for those teams or those roles, when faced with that type of a question, should be an exhilarating, and it should be it should be sort of exciting.
0: I've definitely noticed this paradigm shift, and I'm I'm seeing other professionals and practitioners writing about it and talking about it in terms of from secret to the open source, and how it's it's just completely changed in terms of what's available to us. And there's certainly some out there probably still holding on to that old paradigm of intelligence is not intelligence unless it's secret, but that's you know we're in the midst of this information revolution we have so much information at our fingertips and it's it's something that i think has not been lost upon the private sector it's something as a team you could certainly take advantage of but you know just going back to the mindset piece because this this is really fascinating to me and i would i would love if you could expand on this a little bit and, and i think a lot of people would be interested in sort of thinking about this a little bit more but I mean, number one, what exactly do you mean by developing an intelligence mindset? And then if you can, I mean, are there any key personality traits or skill sets that you would associate with the intelligence
2: mindset or things that we should have? Sure. I think to your point earlier, and I think it's a great one, intelligence isn't about or an intelligence mindset isn't about how many intel tickets you have. Like the this mindset that we, I think, typically in the government used to think through, like, well, what compartment are you in? Or what level of access do you have? Or you don't know the whole side of the story. Or there's this other thing you're not seeing. And I think, to me, one of the things that's been most rewarding about leaving government and starting to engage with other folks who have left either the intelligence community or the Foreign Service or anything else inside government is how quickly they're able to sit back and say, I learned so much in the government of how to think about problems and how to solve problems and how to then produce something that's useful to a U.S. government customer. We think about it in a cyclical fashion from the start, the origination of the question to how am I going to get it to how do I make it useful and how do I relay it to a customer so that it's actionable. And to me, the key trait is curiosity. With that, you have to be really true to yourself to say, can I objectively pursue this line of inquiry? And I say that because I think, particularly in the government, depending on where you are and the types of things you're working on, especially if you work on an issue for a really long time, it's very, very natural to start to develop a sort of an ownership of the topic. Not that you fall in love with it per se, but you can have a real, a really difficult time sort of separating your own personal views from maybe a new piece of data that's going to sort of shift business operations or shift an upcoming meeting, or you see something on the horizon in a place like, for example, China, something I spend a lot of time on, everyone's sitting back now and sort of saying like, well, were they always headed on this path? Or was there a moment where we all should have sort of had a light bulb and people are sort of forensically going back and they're seeing, wow, there are all these breadcrumbs that led us to this moment. This wasn't some massive unannounced threat that sort of arrived on our doorstep. So I think that objectivity is key. I also think you really need to be very entrepreneurial. One of the things that I remember most from my time in government, and I think you guys would feel it too, was if I didn't have access to something or a a thing, a widget, I was going to ask. Like, it's very easy to sit back and maybe say, oh, I don't need help. Or perhaps culturally, you feel like you can't do that. But really standing up and being like, if you want me to do my job, if you want me to get that thing, if you want me to answer these questions, I I need X, Y, Z. And you might not get all of those asks, but if you are entrepreneurial in your pursuit and you can show up to a manager or a boss or someone in your company and be like, I know this is going to cost money, but I really think we need to build this capability because it's going to do X, Y, and Z. You've sort of arrived to the customer with the headache and the aspirin. And I think if you sort of approach problems like that, you really do start to demonstrate value because the last thing you want to be, at least in my view, whether it's in the government or it's outside, is the person that only shows up with problems. You want to show up with a solution. You want to have thought through what that looks like. And the last thing that always sticks out to me is you need to be very team-oriented. I think there was a period of my career where I mistakenly believed this was like a lone wolf approach. And we've all heard phrases, you're the tip of the spear, you're out there, we're on your own, it's all you. And for me, As I sort of matured in my career and just in, I think, my life, I started to realize this is like a team sport. I couldn't be expected to do it all. I needed to talk through and seek advice and counsel from friends, people who maybe even weren't friends, but who had experience doing what I was doing. And that operating in in silos was particularly dangerous. And I think those are lessons that really translate to the private sector because it it doesn't matter if you build what you think is a really world-class intelligence unit or function. If you're not delivering for that company, if people in the company don't know to go to you with their questions, if they don't know what you do and what value you bring, you're just a line item on a spreadsheet somewhere costing money. So you have to have that ROI and you have to constantly be asking yourself, what do I bring to the table? How do I anticipate their needs? And you start to embrace what I think is just a recognition that intelligence is a service industry. You have a customer. It doesn't matter if it's the secretary of state, and it doesn't matter if it's the CEO of a Fortune 50 company. They're a customer. Anticipate their needs. Give them exactly what they want. Tell them when you're going to fall short. All of those basic skills and a humbleness in doing it uh, that I think are, it's just really critical so many insights to unpack there i mean that's that's fantastic
0: just as a quick aside you talked about having the entrepreneurial spirit or mindset we talked about this in episode zero just a little bit but one of the reasons why we call this podcast the business of intelligence is to think about your team or function as a business in in certain ways and i think that sort of spirit or just thinking about taking that approach sort of speaks to that and it's i agree wholeheartedly and We're going to come back to this sort of business mindset in a minute, but let me just pull on one thing real quick, because I know this is really important to people and I know people are listening intently. So, I mean, you gave a wonderful outline of the intelligence mindset and and sort of what that looks like. I mean, for anyone who is listening, who is just getting started, or I mean, even the seasoned professionals, we all have to have the growth mindset mindset. But is there anything that people could do to improve or or implement the intelligence mindset?
2: I think one of the hardest things for folks in the intelligence world is to take on feedback. I think feedback and providing constructive feedback is sort of a lost art. My experience in the government was that we all knew plenty of folks who received a performance review that was perhaps night and day from what we all assess to be their strengths, their weaknesses, their capabilities. And I think one of the beautiful things about the private sector and one of the beautiful things that you can do to sort of, whether you're at the start of your career or later on, because it is an apprenticeship, right? You you should be constantly thinking about bringing up the person that's, that's below you uh, and really sort of building up their skills. And for me, I think really being honest both with yourself about what others have told you about how you're perceived, big lessons on my end on that front, how you come across to people. I've had to make major changes to I think those parts of certain parts of my personality. I'm an aggressive New Yorker, talk very fast, very in your face, no apologies. I think as I found as a manager leading very large teams was not everyone sort of responded to my type of feedback. And so those were just little vignettes to me of saying, well, what am I really good at? What have people said, hey, like maybe you need to really soften some edges here or really go deep here. And a lot of my interest and skills and training naturally developed from just a curiosity. There were plenty of times, I think, when we've all been dropped in countries overseas and maybe they go to you and they're like, guess what, you're the new expert on X topic. And you're like, I remember in, in one assignment, I was told, you're the technology guy. And I was like, I don't know how to turn my iPhone on. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm the technology guy? 5G? What is this? What are you talking about here? And I had to like really very quickly develop a little bit of an acumen there. And there was a part of me that was, as I learned more and more, just curious. And I think not that I would say I'm a tech expert by any stretch of the imagination. And I think we all know Mike Mallard is not a tech expert. I would would say that I developed enough to be able to engage and have value on that issue and to know where to go and who to ask when I didn't have an answer. And that is, that is just the key. Saying, I don't know is okay. Saying, let me get back to you, sir or ma'am, with an answer to that question is way better than giving an answer that maybe you haven't thought through, or maybe you aren't an expert on, because it's really hard to put, I think, to walk that back. So that goes a little bit to the, I think, the humility for me as you think about growth, is it's okay. And almost every manager is going to sit back and every leader is going to sit back and be like, I really like that 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 person said they weren't sure, but they said they'd get back to me. And then you do. And if you can complete that, that sort of a cycle. I do think once again, it goes back to sort of one of your key themes, which is you have to anticipate needs and demonstrate value. Because in the government, we all do, I think to a great extent it's sort of accepted as a given that the customer appreciates what you do. That isn't always the case in the private sector. And you can't just build up a relationship with an executive and then they move on. Everyone moves on, just like the government. You have to show it institutionally in a broad way, but also on an individual level.
1: Actually, uh, Craig, that was a great segue. First of all, I do know that the files are in the computer. That I always know. Uh, Me too. I've seen that.
2: (laughs) I think I've used that meme a few
1: times to talk about you. And then uh, second, no, you just hit on a a big point I wanted. You haven't spent a lot of time around the uh, Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals, ARIP, the Analyst Roundtable, some of the other associations that are out there. One thing I've seen to people who are brilliant analysts, but wouldn't necessarily have started out in the government, how, like you're saying, most, not all people in the government or Intel community understand the intelligence cycle. But if you're an intelligence analyst in a program and the intelligence cycle isn't necessarily there yet or fully developed, so there's no one who's given you requirements or is expecting, Like, what's some advice on how someone can actually start building that processes so it is it is a thing when new people come in?
2: I think it's a great question. And I think it's one that I hope every entry level officer, whether you're an analyst or operator or working in cyber or physical security, should ask themselves that hunger to really demonstrate that they are trying to learn new things and to once again like there has to be a value proposition there, I think, in the private sector space. For me, it's sort of a two part answer. The first is you really need to understand your customer and their needs. The Intel function can't be separate or distinct from what's happening in the C-suite. It can't, I don't think, effectively operate if it's on the other side of the world. You need connective tissue. You need to, even if you're just backbenching meetings in which you're hearing about forecasting or planning or staff meetings, that's always a forum right, where problems are raised. So even at the lowest level to the highest level, more often than not, I think if you approach someone in a different business unit and say, I'm new, I'm really interested in learning more, can I attend some of your staff meetings? Like, I just want to hear what you guys are working on and see if there's anything that overlaps with my portfolio. And I would say 99 times out of 100 in most healthy organizations, they're going to be like, sure, absolutely. And it doesn't cost them anything to invite you. But when they do see when a question is raised or a problem is sort of comes to the surface and you're able to help them out then I do think it's sort of a game changer. So building that network and that connectivity across your business and really understanding who's a, always asking, who's a potential customer? It doesn't always have to be the CEO. If you if you convince yourself that it's only a C-suite that's gonna benefit from the information, I, I don't think that's the way to go. I think you constantly should be looking up, down and left and right and saying, well, who can I help and where can I add value and where can I make things better? And I think the second part of your question at least for me, and it goes to that curiosity bit a little bit. Is for better or for worse, there is so much information out there now about the intelligence community and how it works and how they solve problems and case studies, things that were maybe secret forty years ago that people wouldn't. I mean, we didn't even acknowledge that the NRO existed until the nineteen nineties, right? Like that, can you imagine? in a modern era, keeping a business or I'm sorry, like a government entity with thousands of people, like an actual secret. No way. Like we can't even keep secrets at all. So this idea, right, that you could go and with your own time or on government time, learn from what's on the internet, from books that you can educate yourself. Yeah. A lot of this is learned from, I think, experience and talking to people who have done it. But the biggest challenge to breaking into the sector a little bit, I think, is learning some of the lingo. That's something that I think you can, you can really learn on your own. But more importantly, the intelligence community should be a guild. I've had lots of people reach out to me, I think we all have, who are either in government considering leaving or have left government or maybe in school and are pursuing degrees in this field. And they say, can I, get, can I buy you a cup of coffee and just pick your brain for 30 minutes? I've never said, no, it's 30 minutes, it's a coffee. And I've stayed in touch with a lot of those people, helped serve as references for them. And I do think if you you sort of take a collaborative guild approach, you very quickly see return on investment in a way that can pay dividends for, for your whole career, especially when in the Intel world, I think we're all used to our phone ringing when there's a problem. And when I have a problem, I want to know who I can call to help me with that problem. And if you operate on an island by yourself, I'm not sure you're really setting yourself up or your business uh, for success. You know, you're talking about demonstrating the value proposition, which I
0: think everyone needs to hear. And it's something that we need to hold close to us and, and just remind ourselves of all time at all times. And and one of the other themes that I see emerging and what you're saying is really just the idea of identifying your customer, staying connected with your customer, and making sure that you serve their needs, which I think is really, really important and something that, that everyone needs to remember. I wanna switch gears just a little bit. You also mentioned, when you were talking about the intelligence mindset, you talked about how at some point in your career you learned that this was a team sport, which I think is one of those epiphanies that is really valuable and really helpful. And I know I was sitting here sort of shaking my head and I was thinking, well, when you were describing yourself, I would have been happily on your team because you sort of reminded me of, of some of the ways that I would operate. But you talked about it being a team sport. And this is – so what I want to ask you next, it's, it's on a related note. It's a little bit of a pivot. But another thing that we like to say is that intelligence is a participatory sport or a contact sport in the context of between the producer and the consumer. And so when we say that, when I say intelligence is a participatory sport, what does that mean to you in terms of that relationship between the producer and the consumer in terms of the importance
2: of staying close to the customer? I think it's vital. I think it's in many ways more important than what you produce. The worst feeling I can imagine for a collector or an analyst is working on a project or digging into an issue and devoting resources to something that no one will ever read. It's an issue that I see so much in the think tank space where I am now, but it's something that I think we've all sort of seen and felt in the government. Very rarely do we sit back and say, does anyone even care? Is anyone reading this or is this report going into the black hole of the government and it's never to be used again? That is the worst feeling, I think, especially I think it's regardless of whether you're in the government. Maybe there's even a physical security threat. There are a lot of people in this field that are working uh, overseas in places like Africa and the commercial space where there is a real very serious physical threat to what you're doing. And if you're a CEO and you have officers in places like that, you, you're responsible for them. And so the idea that people would be engaging in activities or supporting things or producing analysis that no one cares about, no one reads, or no one has value in, to me is sort of like a dagger through the heart. And I think can be a real, a really quick way to demoralize up and coming officers in this world. And it's sort of a disservice to now that we're all adults and we own stock and stuff, shareholders who are investing in these companies to say, well, you have the means, resources, and capabilities. What are you not doing? Why are you not addressing these risks? So for me, if you're not building connectivity to that customer with credibility, if, they, if you don't understand their needs and you can't deliver, if you overpromise and you underdeliver, I think it's really hard to walk back from that. And so if you take a humble servant approach I think, to the intelligence space, whether it's in a government setting or whether it's in a corporate world, there's tremendous value in being able to walk into a room with a leader and saying, you have obviously trust that I can get the answers to what you're seeking. That right away is what you want. And the way to build up that trust, I think, is to really get in their head. The Eisenhower example is an interesting one because up until that point, and we were talking about a different time in our country, um, and you're looking at a maybe a corporate space where you can invest new revenue on entity A or entity B, and one of them happens to be an Intel entity and it's up and coming and it's new and it's gonna cost a lot of money and we're not sure, or it's entity B and maybe that's a new product line or something else that another person in the bureaucracy is also seeking. You need to fight and show that you should get those resources. It's something in the government that we didn't naturally have to do. You knew your budget, Three years out, you could plan reasonably years out for what everything was going to cost and what you knew on a particular day in October was going to go right into a bank account that you guys could sort of leverage and make contracts for. And I do think that if you approach intelligence as that service industry model, and if you really do sit back and say, I want to help my team prevent strategic surprise, I want to get ahead of their problems. I want to know where we're at right now and what our problems are. And in some fields, like cyber, as we watch these ransomware attacks, it's sort of frustrating because I think a lot of folks in that field and a lot of CIOs have been saying for years, we have major problems here, guys. And truth be told, a lot of companies spent millions, and in some cases, tens of millions of dollars on very sophisticated IT gear and systems only to be befuddled by these sort of ransomware attacks. And I do think What it does is, you know, these incidences, they increase, and these are the ones we know about, sort of raise the bar and the requirement that you have a personal relationship with your customer and that they understand intelligence is about managing risk. We'll never get to zero. If you're talking to me, it's because we're never going to get to zero. So let's get that number, that risk quotient, as small as humanly possible. Let's think through and game out what we would do If things go bad, and this is where I think, for example, in the think tank space, we're constantly wargaming with companies and with the government. Most people wouldn't think in the private sector that they need to game out what we would literally call back in our own life, a war game about a supply chain disruption or a war game about one of their, uh, for example, installations blowing up in Western Africa or in the Middle East or in Mexico. But if you have people on your team like us who have been involved in those scenarios, have led war games, who have even just participated and knowledgeable of them, in a two-hour tabletop exercise, you can walk out of there with every element of your business understanding, if this happens, this is the thing I'm responsible for. This is the team I know who to contact, and here's how we're going to approach it. That sets a business leaps and bounds, I think, beyond a competitor or another business that isn't thinking that way about anticipatory needs and anticipatory intelligence beyond the the target that's right in front of them.
0: Well, I think you just nicely set up a future episode on wargaming, red teaming, scenario planning. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you for that. No, it's a good one. <laughs> there's one thing I wanted to emphasize in terms of what you just said. You talked about the humble servant mindset or approach and I feel as if that needs to be a guiding principle for every team out there. It's just so important. And just along the lines of being connected to the customer, being customer-driven, I want to share just a quick lesson learned that, you know, with everybody listening that uh, I've learned over the years. And I thought now would be a good point to drive this home. And that is... The three of us guys, we could probably sit around and we could have some of our friends and colleagues sit around a whiteboard or what have you. We could probably sketch out a dozen, 15 core products and services, core roles and responsibilities that we think we should be doing, that we think is going to add the most value. But the truth is maybe only... Two or three or four of them, and that's, um, that's just arbitrary numbers, but maybe only a handful of those are really important to the customer. So unless you're connected with that customer, unless you're going on that customer journey, so to speak, with them, you know, you're really not demonstrating that value proposition that you talked about, Craig. And it's okay. No one should get discouraged if you're not doing exactly what you want right away because What you can do is you focus on what matters most, you deliver on what matters most, which is what the customer needs. You're gonna build your credibility bank. And then later on, you might have an opportunity to get some other things in, or it's gonna open some doors for you to say, hey, what about this, or or what about that? So I think that's a lesson learned. And you, you just reminded me of that as you walked us through the importance of having that humble servant mindset. The other thing I wanted to do is tell you guys just a really quick story and and tease something up. And this is going to sound so ridiculous on its face, but when I was in the military and I did a military deployment, I have no idea where I got this mindset, but I would promote this mindset that we were going to be like a business. Our function, our team was going to run like a business. and. It's ridiculous because we're talking about people's lives who are potentially at stake. And here I am trying to say, we need to act like a business. If we didn't do this you know, at the highest level, we would be getting fired. And I think what I was trying to do, I didn't really know what I was talking about, but what I was trying to do was promote this culture of accountability, which I had always assumed was in place in the private sector. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we were just trying to drive this culture of demonstrating value again. So Craig, I mean, you've woven these lessons throughout this conversation, I think on the value proposition, but if we could just maybe, I don't know if you wanted to highlight one or two things just to reiterate this, what do you think is the best way to demonstrate value to a business as an intelligence function or intelligence professional?
2: I think to me, and you raise a great point and I love it, it's that I think sometimes we will not allow good enough when we're, we're constantly striving for perfection, when we're building out these units. To your point, do we need to hire 10 or 15 people right out of the gate? And do we need to have all of these different skill sets? And I think one of the things that, one of the lessons I've always sort of taken is if your approach is very tailored, then you're probably going to develop specialty, And you can start somewhere really, really small. And I think to your point, you can't take on everything all at once, even massive companies with lots of people. It comes sort of a real quick stand, I think, to sort of take on too many different lines of effort on too many different complex issues, especially if you're really at a point where you are attempting to justify your existence or thinking about, as we all just experienced over the last year, companies going through, where do we make a cut? You want to make yourself so invaluable that they can't even conceive. You're you're not even on a list somewhere. It's like, oh, of course we need that unit. What are you, crazy? And this is the whole reason that we have these people on board is to help us manage risk during times like this. And good companies sat back during this period and I think really assessed and said, I can't lose that skill. It's like losing muscle memory. It's really hard to recruit new people. It's really hard to train them. It's really hard to find people for our culture. And part of that, I think, is when you can tailor your product to the executive leadership or to teams, and you're creative and entrepreneurially in doing that, you will see ROI and you will see actually a feedback loop. And by that, I mean, maybe, for example, I've been in a corporate setting where I had a corporate client that I was working with directly engaging with the C-suite on some risk management in East Asia. And I happened to strike up, because you're constantly scheduling meetings, a really great relationship with the CEO's executive assistant. And we just got along really well, and we sort of developed just a great personal rapport. And I started to realize that I didn't really have a very good sense of what was like the upcoming meeting schedule, for example, for the CEO in the area that I worked. And sort of the intellectual curiosity on my side was, hey, would you ask the CEO if you'd be willing to share some of the dates that you have coming up for big meetings, and it was out of scope actually for what I was working on, but as I started to see, oh, well, they have a really big trip coming up to Asia Pacific soon, and I can see who they're meeting with. Why don't I spend 30 minutes doing a little bit of a deep dive on each of those companies and the people that they are going to get ready to meet, and to see what I can find on things like social media, and to provide just a little paragraph to be like, This is something that this person has said or done. This might be an interesting way to either develop rapport with them or a risk that might come up during the meeting. Like, are you thinking through it? And it was as simple as, like five bullet points on a paper, but for an executive who could review that before a meeting, the feedback loop started to become very, very clear and very, very definitive. Hey, they actually mentioned that. They responded really well to this. Well, they didn't raise this issue, but they raised this other issue. Can you dig into that a little bit? And once that two-way feedback loop started to develop and I was able to provide something as simple when we say a product, five bullet points here, guys. We're not talking about something that had like DOD level PowerPoint slides, something very simple, there was value to it and they could they could recognize it right away. On a bigger corporate level, I've seen real value where you can sit back and, for example, at least in the security space, how often are companies sitting back and projecting and being like, beyond 9-11, what are some other dates that are coming up that might be like a real concern for physical installations around the world? And it's not in America. Like maybe you're not thinking about your businesses in Nigeria or parts of the Middle East, or even in places that you perceive to be safe? Like what's coming up just by looking at a calendar and sitting back and saying, maybe this is a time for like a little bit of a company alert or just an engagement with someone in that office to say, hey, this is coming up. Have you guys thought through a little bit of like your emergency response protocols or if something happened, do you have an emergency tree? Like, how would you communicate with your officers and how would you ensure the safety of the work environment itself? If you had to leave really fast, all of these things that I think are very natural to us because in the government, you are trained for them and you test that and probe that all the time. But if you sit back wherever you are and it doesn't, you don't need to be high level, you can be anywhere. I think along sort of that chain and sit back and be like, hmm, this is probably worth a 30 minute investment. And I do think that those little breadcrumbs of products and tailored support can lead to big enterprise-level products that other executives hear through word of mouth. Hey, Mike, hey, Ryan, I got this meeting coming up too. Can you help me? And the second that happens, you're off to the races. And I do think that's exciting for an intelligence professional because you want to, once again, not produce something that's going to sit in a hard drive somewhere. And B, the business executives, you want them to know who to call When they've got a problem and you want that person to be you that was great yeah well yeah i was gonna say
1: great info and uh, a good segue with to uh cross functionality we've kind of talked around it throughout the meeting you made uh, great points what advice or perspective can you give on the importance of cross functionality and you know for example let's say at the start of the global war on terrorism there was a lot of disparity between the operational units and intelligence units, between UMINT and SIGINT, between analysts and operators, where, you know, I think over the years we evolved into, you know, whether it's a team of teams and task force in Iraq or other locations and interagency cooperation, like what kind of advice can you give? Because, you know, I think in certain elements in the private sector, there's still the aspect of, well, you know, that person's an analyst, that person's a executive protection officer that person's a risk management or cyber like what, what's some what's some uh, points you can make on that on how how we can improve ourselves in that area
2: yeah no it's a great one and i i wish after the devastation of nine eleven and dozens of other events that have occurred since then that you would you would not see these silos of excellence as i used to call them operating throughout the government where the left hand isn't talking to the right hand and In the government, it can be as counterproductive and self-defeating as the person who sits next to you. You have no idea what they're really working on. And I think that more and more, to your point, Mike, we're starting to see this idea that you can maintain specialty in your area of work without losing—and you don't lose anything by engaging and sharing knowledge and insight— With other folks in your team and building when you sit back and you have a meeting that's coming up or you have something, an important product that you sort of take a step back and say, more people is probably better than too few people. And it would be better to invite more folks to that meeting or that engagement or that product and maybe checking with everyone afterwards and being like, do you think this is going to be a meaningful use of your time? I wanted you here because you bring X to the table. And having more voices at the table can, I think, often be really, really important and often i've been in scenarios very high level scenarios when it was the most junior person in the room who was viewing a problem differently now i'm not saying every idea is going to be like a golden nugget here but creating a culture where that young person can sit back and be like have we ever thought this might be a stupid question but have we ever thought about x and you will have experiences in your career where everyone looks around and says never thought of that or the response I like the most is, that'll never work. And I used to look around and be like, prove me wrong. Spend a little time on this. And more often than not, I was just really surprised with the ideas that came my way. I do think the key to a lot of this, though, is actually building personal relationships with other people. Even in government, when you might be switching tours every, every, from every 60 days sometimes to two or three years. Building personal relationships with people in your office, as simple as a coffee or getting to know someone, can pay major, major dividends. One of the challenges I encountered sort of in my career was I thought that all everyone in this world had to be an extrovert. I really thought that you had to be out there sh- schmoozing all the time and really be very, very extroverted. And I happen to be pretty introverted. I used to get exhausted from all of the events that we had to do or all the meetings we had to do. I would come home and crash. Like my wife would, would be like, I know not to talk to him for an hour after he gets home because he needs to go sit in, sit in his room and read or just decompress. And I think for me, if you can understand the people on your team and you can just get to know them a little bit, you don't have to be best friends. You don't have to be like them. You don't have to want to spend your private time with them. But understanding their skills and capabilities, because you've had a few conversations, is what is actually going to be the return. Because you're going to need them for something. You can use them for something. They can use you for something. It becomes self-reinforcing. The hard part, especially over the last year, right, where we're all sort of disconnected and separated, is reaching out to people, especially new people on your team, and being like, hey, tell me about yourself. It's as simple as that, it sounds so simple. And I have found that it is one of the hardest uh, things for someone in the intelligence world, a, a discipline that is sort of uh, lost and something that we all sort of forget as we're so focused on the mission. So I think if you're in those relationships and you talk to people and you sort of demystify to your point, Ryan, like not everyone who works in the intelligence community has got like an M4 strapped on their back and is scary. If you have no experience in this field and you are at a business, you wouldn't even know what Intel brings to bear. You think it's something totally different. A lot of people's minds immediately go to like the physical security space, critically important. There's a lot more to it. The physical, I think, Intel space only functions if you have connectivity with these other business units. And I think if you engage with people throughout the organization, throughout that enterprise, the more people you touch and the more people you win over very quickly, people start to say well hey i wonder if i call ryan i wonder if he knows the answer and i think it's just a great way to start to develop a relationship that's a two-way dialogue
0: yeah so well said i think i mean if i were to sum that up i think relationships and developing relationships are are simply the cornerstone of what is and what we've said is a customer-driven industry or field really so no that's that's fantastic and listen, we get, we're going to ask you a couple more questions before we get to the rapid fire, which should be fun because this is obviously the first time we've ever done this. And, and Mike, I'll let you do that rapid fire piece. But just a couple of quick questions just to wrap up a couple of things. So, you know, we've been talking for a while now about how companies need to think about their own Intel needs. And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that there are some new functions out there, there are some resource-strapped functions out there that maybe don't have a lot of people, or just additional resources at their disposal. So is there a way for a team to find a force multiplier, so to speak, in terms of assisting their efforts, expanding their capabilities when they don't have a lot of headcount, particularly maybe external resources? Did you have any thoughts on that? how could we tap in or how could teams tap into the expertise of let's say external networks, for example?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think as the number of risks multiply, companies and managers are constantly forced to ask themselves, where can I get the answer to this question? And I do think one of the big challenges is actually stepping back and You almost have to whiteboard it and say, for this particular question, who are all the people out there who would possibly know this? And do I have any connectivity to these people and where do they operate? You do not have to build an in-house capability for everything. I mean, maybe at the biggest companies and the most well-resourced companies, you can really get away with it. But on niche products, and even as a starting point to trying to show proof of concept, whether you go to a private vendor out there, and there are lots of companies who do great risk management and due diligence, or increasingly, I think just being in the think tank space, I've been amazed to see how many corporate entities approach us at the think tank world and in academia where I also work. And they say, well, you guys are the experts on China's military modernization. Can we set up something as simple as a panel? Or can I commission you guys to write a report? This is my question. And it's starting with a question, a good research team or a good researcher can turn around a product and can task intelligence sources that, for example, on something like the China issue that are in Chinese language, that are behind the firewall, that researchers have, through real sheer grit and sort of entrepreneurial spirit, have gotten their hands on these types of things. And they can turn around a product that is near... IC level in terms of the insight, in terms of the data, in terms of the data points. I think it's really important for folks to realize that often the analysis that the intelligence community produces is not particularly secret. The sources and methods are, but increasingly, as the number of the sources and methods expand, and as you can get access to them outside of government, you can more or less deduce the same things. And I think that from a corporate from a corporate perspective, if I'm sitting back and I'm thinking about something, it can be as simple, for example, in the think tank world, we get red selled all the time. A business unit is thinking about entering into X market. They'll go to the think tank world and be like, who's your Latin America guy? Who's your Mexico guy? Let's red sell this. Is this a really good idea and where are all the problems that I'm going to encounter? And all of that information knowledge and insight can really inform the business down to a is this a go or no go sort of decision so i think one of the things to always remember and there are great corporate entities that do this very very well exceptionally well and they produce a great product i don't want to take away from that but in academia and in the think tank space too i think you can get something solid that's a lot more cost effective you can develop a relationship with experts who are going to who spend their whole careers in certain fields. And more often than not, those individuals and those those entities are really eager to actually hear from the private sector because the private sector and who business people meet often you can get in kernel of truth or insight about a problem that's burgeoning before it's a problem. And so it really, once again, if you approach that customer mindset and that two-way exchange. Those smaller, maybe non-traditional outfits in that world, academia, think tanks can, in my view, provide just tremendous value at low cost. I love
0: that. And from just my perspective of a private sector practitioner, I think it's an underrated and underutilized resource. And for everyone listening, I mean, if you think about it, you've got world-class practitioners Thinking and asking the hardest questions around a variety of different issues that we're all facing these days. Along those lines, just as an internal team, if you're thinking about what are those potential issues that you could face in asking those questions and then trying to match expertise, external expertise with those so you know where to go, I think is really, really great advice. So one more quick one before we get into the really rapid fire, and and it's really on a related note. You know, when we started this, we obviously wanted to delve into and explore just this idea of the private sector intelligence world, what teams are doing, what are they doing well, what could we improve? But we also wanted to focus on helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. And in your lead-in, or when you got started, You really sort of framed that nicely for us. So, you know, if I were to ask you, what do you think is one of the bigger challenges that multinationals face today? Or maybe it's something that we're not thinking about right now, but we should be. What would you say to that?
2: I think the answer has to be China, China, China. And I say that not just to someone who <laughs> spends a lot of time on China. And the more you learn about the China issue and sort of this evolution in our relationship with China and China's relationship with the world, you're increasingly seeing a scenario where this is no longer a public sector or government problem only. I think for a very long period of time, rightly or wrongly, corporate world viewed China as a land of opportunity. And in many respects, it was. I think Xi Jinping uh, is sort of a wake-up call. There are people who want to sit back and say, well, before Xi, the Chinese were always like this. And then you have other camps that say, since his rise, it's just a different path. So we weren't maybe wrong before, but we do have to accommodate this current new trajectory. Either way, you get to a a point where you say something's different and we need to sort of adapt. And increasingly in the corporate space, I think that as you talk about ESG and you talk about values and you talk about what your company represents and what a consumer wants, from your company, you are going to start to confront some very uncomfortable questions about places like China. If you work in the apparel industry, it's been forced labor and it is for a while. Now that's increasingly becoming a risk in things like electric vehicles and solar panels and things, anything that's produced in certain parts of China where there are major suspicions of modern day concentration camps and forced labor. Well, if you're a company, how familiar are you with your supply chain? Soup to nuts. The shocking answer is a lot of companies don't. A lot of things are outsourced. A lot of things are done through third-party providers and vendors. It only takes really one bad story, I think, to cause major damage to a corporate brand. And it can be very, very difficult to sort of get back from that. So if you start to sit back, and once again, I think if we go back to this idea that Intel is all about reducing, it's risk mitigation. It's not risk elimination. You sort of just have to sit back as a business and say, all right, how exposed are we here? If something bad happens, do we know exactly what we would say or do? And what steps can we sort of take to mitigate that risk? Can we, is it feasible to move a supply chain? Is it feasible to reassess the fidelity that we have on certain aspects of our business? Do we want to be engaging in that sector or that country at all? Like, what's the return on investment? Do we really think it, it's there? And if you start to ask some of those hard questions, I think most companies now look at it a, less about dollars, and a little bit more about common sense. And I think that that issue is going to be one that percolates to the top, primarily because, as we've seen sort of even domestic unrest here in the United States, and how the corporate world has had to pivot and respond to that, increasing geopolitical instability will require similar responses to things happening in other parts of the world. And if you're not ready for that moment... I think we can all name a few companies out there who maybe didn't handle some of those issues very well. I think if you ask people in those companies, and I've spoken to a few of them, they'll say, that was not good. We don't want to do that again. How do we not do that? Well, you prepare, you get ahead of it. You war game, you tabletop, you talk to people, and you be honest about your risks. And so China, to me, I think, just as the world's manufacturing center and what everything that China represents, particularly even in finance, more and more people in Washington are looking at this. And if people in DC are looking at it, you better get ready if you're in the corporate
0: space. So number one, I know everyone's just listening. We're on audio, you can't see us, but Michael and I were sitting here nodding our heads, taking notes. Number two, Craig, if if we could ever have you back, there's so much to unpack there. We need to do an episode on this because I feel like there was so much packed in, into that just alone. But thanks for that perspective. I know a lot of people are going to appreciate it. So, Michael, do you want to transition into rapid fire and, and take us home? This yeah, no, as a,
1: absolutely. As a, as a fellow New Yorker, I'd like to really throw some difficult and shameful questions at Craig. But <laughs> for our audience and consistency, we're gonna we're gonna ask someone's. You know, I think the key point is to learn a little more about you, Craig, but also just to share some common thoughts within the context of the topics we're talking about. First question is, what's your favorite place in the world and why? And it could be as simple as the cafe across the street, or it could be somewhere you like traveling or somewhere where you just had monumental career or personal place or action.
2: For me... One of the things that I enjoyed most in our old life was, and in current life, was the travel. And obviously with the last year, that's not been a possibility. You sort of get accustomed to seeing new places and going new things, uh, doing new things rather. I actually, as since becoming a dad about six years ago, uh, have become very lame. And so one of my favorite places, actually, I have a son who is obsessed with baseball. I never played baseball. I used to watch baseball, but like now we're sort of obsessive in baseball in my house. Going to a baseball game, like a Washington Nationals game with my son, being able to, you know, have a beer and a hot dog and watch my kid watch a whole baseball game and then talk about the baseball game for 3 hours after is just I think one of life's uh, greatest moments for me and just something that that I look forward to every time. Awesome! I get a you just got to make
1: sure when I'm back in D.C., we bring him to the Yankees games to try to try to get him on the right courts.
2: Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I rather. was. I was, <laughs> no I was just going to say that about
0: the Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> if you want a real baseball experience, Craig, we'll take you to a Cubs game. If I want to get a you know, glass bottle thrown at me, I'll definitely. <laughs>
1: uh, okay, second one. <laughs> what book, article, or presentation should we all be reading right now? Personal favorite of mine is the uh, Foundation of Defense of Democracies author, <laughs> Craig Singleton. Ha, that's that. Uh, <laughs> besides the shameless plug, uh, what, what, what else it. would you recommend? Take it.
2: I actually just finished a great book. I would highly recommend It's called The Scientist and the Spy. So this is like a true story. It involves China, the FBI, and industrial espionage. So it's this true story of how China has infiltrated a lot of the commercial sector in the United States and how the FBI was sort of going after it. And I think there's actually a lot of lessons learned for in-house intel experts and folks in our field to say, well, you can't always call in the FBI to help you. But what steps am I actually taking on things like insider threat or understanding what my vulnerabilities are? If you're picking up the phone and calling the FBI, uh, it's too late, my friends. So it's just an interesting book and reminder and then of something that is real, that was out there that involves China, and that I think... There's just a lot of lessons learned from
1: reading cool. books like that. And, uh, I, I got to check it out. I've not read that one, but read a lot of the articles and such, and I'll uh, definitely follow up on that. I got one here that Ryan requested I elaborate on a bit, but what was an unknown unknown you've encountered in your career or lately? And for example, let's say a global pandemic hitting, but so don't use that one, but just something. <laughs> oh, you took mine. Something uh, of that ilk where you've experienced personally. And just some advice for people on how to, I think you kind of hit on that in some of your red teaming war wargaming, but, you know, if you want to double tap that, but just ways where people can understand how to prevent being caught flat footed from that.
2: Oh man, COVID would have been a great answer there. I think this last year has been just illuminating to figure out things that you never thought you would be doing and how loud your spouse or you talk. On Skype calls and how their voice goes up forty-five decibels when you when you're in the same room having a voice call. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. That was an unknown, unknown for me for sure. I'm actually, this is going to sound so lame. The importance of really comfortable footwear, and I say this I know very what seriously. <laughs> I think we all served in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and I do recall one time where I was smart on this, I took a bad, bad fall. Twist my ankle pretty badly in a place that I really didn't want to be in. And it was a constant reminder to me of something just very simple of not only just being aware of your surroundings, but constantly thinking like what could go wrong in this thing. Wargaming in my mind a little bit, what it would look like, and I should have known better. And I, in retrospect, now sort of have like a nervous tick. anytime my family and I go hiking or anywhere. It's like, hey, do you have water? Do you have sunscreen? Do you have like a energy bar? We have a little go bag in our car. Sort of building out from that because I think for me, Murphy's Law. Great example can always happen. It happens to everybody.
1: Hey, uh, knowing what you know now, what piece of advice would you give your former self if you were just starting out? Pace yourself
2: this is a marathon, not a sprint. I look back in my early 20s, I think we all sort of do. I'm like envious of the amount of energy that we all had back then. And there were trade-offs. There were key trade-offs in our personal lives and how much time we spent with loved ones, including loved ones who are no longer with us. I think that there's a real pressure at the beginning of everyone's career to go big, 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 to take on more and more and more. And It's been at least my experience in our world that burnout rates are exceptionally high, exceptionally common. We don't all like talking about them. But if you run too hot too fast for too long, eventually it'll catch up with you. So figure out for you what it is. That helps you relax. Is it exercise? A few years ago, I uh, my wife turned me on to meditating. I never, I'm like seriously, like the last guy in the world I ever thought would be like on a Headspace app meditating for 20 minutes a day. But I got to tell you, I feel clear, I feel relaxed after, I feel focused. That's something that I never expected. Something that like I mentioned to like my family from like new york and they look at me like i'm crazy and have three heads and i'm like you should really try it i'm not saying do yoga but like start somewhere figure out for you how do you decompress and how do you recharge and be honest with yourself about what that is
1: great all right last one this is more of a call to action i mean because tboi is partially about sparking new and innovative ideas and trying to help our fellow practitioners make breakthroughs so For those listening, what would would be your call to action in terms of something we should all do differently or think about differently? I mean, your last answer was a great one, but maybe something along the same lines of like, what would you be telling fellow practitioners to strive for to improve at their craft?
2: I always think I try to tell people, assume noble intent. I think more often than not, when you're engaging with someone, particularly someone who's new, and there's just a fundamental misunderstanding or even a minor misunderstanding, how we communicate what we're thinking to people is exceptionally important. The words we choose, the way we ask questions, how we phrase things, our tone, different tone for different people, different words for different people. If you reflect on that, a key thing that everyone should be doing is you should be questioning that status quo, but do so respectfully. And I do think that I've seen myself included great ideas or Hands raised. Hey, I'm not sure this is a good, good idea, a good, you know, line of inquiry or pursuit, and it's been shot down because it wasn't delivered the right way. So, if you really seek feedback from other people, if you have opportunities to do things like 360 feedback or to develop a mentorship with someone who can tell you, hey, I would approach this person in this way, and you are tactful in your approach you can build allies and you can build relationships. And it wasn't maybe a lesson. It was definitely not a lesson early on in my career. I really understood. But over time, I think more often than not, uh, I was able to get it right. There's still plenty of things I look back and say, God, I wish I could redo that entire meeting because that meeting or that one interaction had second and third order effects that were really just not great. And I look back on and I say, I wish I could call that person and say, I'm sorry that I said X or I didn't handle that well. But if you go in thinking... How can I just respectfully push back on this idea or present the challenge? More often than not, I think you can you can sort of move the needle or at least respectfully sort of capture your concern on something. And it's not a game of gotcha. It's really just trying to convince people that what you're saying might be right. And there is no prize, I don't think, for years later when something goes wrong to be like, well, I told you, I told you so. What value is that in there and that in the corporate space or government space? Very little. What you really want to do is be able in that moment, I think, to say, hey, can we talk about this in a different way? Or can we take this offline? Or can we stay after this meeting? I have a, some other questions. Let me talk to you. How you handle that, I think, makes the difference between a great intelligence officer and great intelligence practitioner and someone who will very quickly find themselves isolated, the smartest guy in the cubicle that no one talks to. And what a waste.
1: Wow. I'm just thinking to myself. I'm sure Ryan probably is too. Uh, I mean, thanks for setting the bar so high on our first rapid fire question round. That was was really good, informative. Got me thinking about things. One thing I think a lot of our listeners will, will wonder is, I know and Ryan knows, but for the group, what are you working on and where can people find you if they want to read more of your work or connect?
2: I'm a fellow at uh, the Foundation for Defensive Democracies. And so that's a, a nonpartisan foreign policy national security think tank here in DC. I focus on China great power competition, understanding the Indo-Pacific and really thinking through international organization reform. And a lot of that actually touches up against the private sector. If you work in tech, Guaranteed, you know what the International Telecommunications Union is. It's the most powerful entity no one's ever heard of that's setting the standards for 5G, for everything else. Those are all issues that we sort of look at in the think tank space. We engage on research, but we also talk to folks in government, executive and legislative branch and propose new ideas. Here are things that we can do differently. Here's a problem that we and here's how we see it. And I think that for me, it's been really interesting to be policy prescriptive, right? Because we're not used to that in Intel space. And it's something that people leaving government as you work to the corporate sector, when your CEO asks you, well, what should we do about it? You better have an answer. And in the Intel world, we were sort of supposed to sit back and be like, well, sir, here's the policymaker, or here's the analyst, or here's this other person. And it's been an interesting ride to sort of be able to, to wear both hats.
1: All right. Wow. Great. Well, the, Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say enough about how great that was. Ryan, any final input you want to put out there?
0: No, I would I would just agree. We are so grateful for your time. We know how valuable your time is. My my head is spinning right now because I was, even as you were talking, I was just sort of taking mental notes and and thinking about all these lessons and insights. And I'm really glad you were able to share them with everyone listening. So thanks again. We really appreciate it. That wraps up episode number one, everyone. So thank you for your time and attention. Thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone.